everyone, thank you for tuning in to the Brick and Mortar podcast. Um, this is a interim video chat series that we're doing in honor of social distancing. I'm taking the time to reach out to a bunch of my peers and discuss how coronavirus and COVID-19 have changed the industries in which they operate uh, and ultimately trying to tie it back to the real estate space. So I hope you enjoy these discussions and insights as much as I do. Everyone, um, my name is Jared Vogler. Um, I'm 34 years old. Um, I was born and raised in Toronto. Um, I attended Lawrence Park, but Avenue Road in Lawrence. Had a great time there. Uh, really enjoyed playing rugby and football. Um, and subsequently was actually part of the, the first uh, double cohort class or uh, first class without OAC. So I did four years of high school and I went to university at 17 years old. Um, so it was a, an interesting time. Um, I applied to, to lots of different schools and got into some, didn't get into others because um, I, I'd say I was a, a bit of more of a B student than anything. Um, and at that time it was very competitive because you had two graduating classes and you know the standards were very high. So I didn't get into all the schools I wanted, but I did get into some. And um, my family and I decided that um, it was probably better off for me to to go right into university rather than taking a gap year. I think in hindsight, um, I may have changed that. Um, you know, I understand my my family's rationale behind it in that you know if you take a year in between to work, um, it's going to be challenging to get back into that that mentality of of going to school every day. And learning every day and I don't totally disagree with that but I think at 17 years old you're asking a lot for uh, what our children to, to many times you know go away to school um, which was my decision again um, but I really think that if I had taken that extra year um, that OAC gives you uh, I really would have been a lot more mature um, I would have been you know almost 19 years old going into university um, and you know, when you get to school, there you have all these this freedom, right? I had lived with my parents uh, until I left. Um, I, I went to Bishop's University, uh, which is a, a school in the eastern townships of Quebec. Now, it's a beautiful, beautiful place to go to school. Um, what attracted me there was it's a relatively small university, um, a student population of just about three thousand. And uh, that was very attractive to me because I went to a smaller high school. Now, for Toronto standards, my high school was, uh, was 1,200 people. And, you know, some of you might say that that's a huge school. Um, but a lot of the high schools in Toronto are, you know, 2,000 plus or close to 3,000 people. So, you know, the fact that I went to a smaller high school, played rugby um, and football and, um, was kind of looking for a, a university that kind of matched up with that criteria. Um, so Bishop's really felt like a, a great place for me to go. My father's family is originally from Montreal. Um, so my grandparents were still there at the time. And I had a lot of experience in Montreal growing up. I also attended French immersion until grade six. Um, so the French language was something that was, you know, close to me. 
Um, I loved the, the culture in Quebec. So it was kind of a natural progression, natural fit for me to go to Bishop's University. While I was there, um, I had a fantastic time. I played varsity rugby, um, made friends from all over the country. Um, interesting fact about Bishop's, there's actually a very large propensity or percentage of the school um, who come from the West Coast, who come from British Columbia. Um, not sure exactly why that is, but I think probably 15 to 20% of my friends at Bishop's, and we've remained friends, which is another very unique thing about the school, uh, were from British Columbia. Um, so I got a lot of perspective on the West Coast and what it was like there. And um, went through a, an economics and a business major and, uh, and got through it. <laughs> Graduated uh, in 2007. And, uh, and was ready to get into the job market. I actually took a little bit of um, time running a martial arts school. Um, and I thought maybe I would go into that, that end of the business world. Um, you know, teaching martial arts, running a school. Um, I had grown up training since I was four years old in various martial arts, mostly Shotokan karate, which I'm a second degree black belt in. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot of, a lot of skills, um, hard skills, soft skills in, in martial arts. Um, something that I would suggest for any child. Uh, I think it's a fantastic use of time for the child and a fantastic use of money and resources for the parents. You get a lot, a lot out of martial arts. So, you know, I worked at the, at the martial arts school for, for many or for several months. I helped grow that business to the point where they had uh, an enrollment of 1,300 students, um, which was quite impressive. The business was built up uh, very, very well and was about a million and a half dollar business a year. Um, you know, I didn't have the conversation about equity with, um, with the owner because um, we were, were very close friends and, you know, I didn't really see I didn't really see him going that way with his business. He wanted to maintain control, um, which I totally get. But you know, I wasn't going to just teach martial arts for the rest of my life. I, you know, I spent time being educated in economics and business. Not that there's anything wrong with teaching martial arts. Uh, it just wasn't going to afford me the lifestyle that I was looking for from a financial perspective for my family. So, my father had been a broker, or and is still a broker. Um, he was with CBRE at the time. Um, which many of you would know is the leading firm, the largest firm in, in the commercial space industry. Um, and we'll get back to, to that industry shortly. Um, but unbeknownst to him, I, I cold called the, the managing director of the downtown CB office. Um, my father actually worked in the North office at the time. He always discouraged me from getting into the business. He said, you know, Jared, this is a very challenging business you want to have a family someday and you know, the revenue is not always consistent. Um, there's no salary involved and you know, it's a, it's a challenging lifestyle. Not many people who enter the business end up staying in the business. In fact, there's about an 80% attrition rate on the commercial side. So he always discouraged me like a true son. I, uh, I didn't take his advice and, uh, I got a job uh, in August with CBRE's downtown office in their research department. 
Um, about a month later, I started. Um, I started the day after Labor Day uh, in September 2008. And uh, many of you will remember, some of you will remember, some of you weren't in the workforce at that point, but there was a, a significant recession um, that happened, started to happen September of that year. Uh, the financial markets were melting down in the US. We had the subsequent credit crunch uh, that affected us about a year after, and we were in a deep recession. Thankfully, the effect of that recession was not felt nearly nearly as hard in Canada as it was in the US. Um, so where was I at that point? I was you know, just getting into office real estate. I was working in research. I was getting my coursework done through Aurea, um, which you know, I was balancing that with work. Um, and uh, agents, brokers on the sales floor weren't super excited to be taking on, you know, a junior broker at that time. A lot of them were concerned with their own families and their own well-being. You know, we had uh, a wave of supply of office product coming on the market. Um, and couple that with lack of confidence in, you know, business growth or a lack of growth or decision making. You know, that makes for some very, very dark times and dark predictions. So there were predictions of, you know, 15, 20% vacancy rates that were going to hit the downtown market because we had a lot of kind of what I'll call legacy, legacy office product, like the TD centers of the world, like uh, the buildings at the Eaton Center, um, Commerce Court, all of that, you know, is class A product, but there was new product coming on. There was the first Bay Adelaide Center building coming on. There was RBC Dexia 155 Wellington. And of course, we start, started to see the, the emergence of Southcore, um, which is now a very vibrant office. So there was a lot of fear and doom and gloom. Um, but the reality was that, um, thankfully, our banks were growing and taking advantage of that U.S. business um, that was not being serviced by the U.S. banks because they were in such bad trouble. Um, so you saw banks like TD and RBC and Scotia growing in the U.S. and growing in the growing globally, and they were taking on more space locally to do that. So um, luckily, our banks are really what saved us from a collapse or um, you know a deep, deep correction in the office market. Now I know that was uh, quite a, quite a lengthy explanation. No, it was valuable though. I think. Yeah, and um, that kind of got me to not where I am today um, because I've. I've gone through CBRE, you know, I went to JLL with my team subsequently after that Jones Lang LaSalle, and we've now arrived at Savills. And I truly do think that Savills is going to be my, my last stop. Um, I plan on finishing my career here. I've really aligned myself with a, a brokerage that makes a lot more sense for the type of work that I do. So I'm very thankful for, for that. Awesome. Awesome. I'm, uh, I'm glad to hear that. If uh, just on the, on the individual level, are you able to give me a little bit of an idea of what a typical work day or work week looked like, uh, you know, a month ago 
versus how things have changed for you in your daily and also in the in the work environment um what what that looks like today or what your next work week is going to look like sure sure i think um first i should probably define my role and then there are really kind of three buckets of work that i do uh, or three job functions that i perform on a weekly basis call it so uh i'm what's called an occupier advocate so i advocate and provide an end-to-end solution for commercial occupiers of space. I specialize in representing office office tenants, so the corporations who lease space in office buildings. Uh, but I also do some work on the retail side. Uh, some of my clients have businesses that extend into both asset classes. And uh, the odd time I will do some work on the industrial side, but that's mostly in in purchasing and selling buildings for some of my investor clients. So um, my three main job functions really are the selling function, which is very important in that business, in my business because it, it drives revenue um, and provides stability in those revenues. Then there's the execution part of my business, which is physically taking my clients through the process, which I'll explain to you a little bit later, um, executing on transactions and creating a, a working environment for their employees. And the third part of my, of my job function is really customer care and communicating effectively with my clients, managing their expectations and understanding where various uh, transactions, various plans that we have in place are at in their cycles. So how has that, uh, what does that physically manifest itself into in day-to-day activities? So usually I'll come in, uh, I I come to the office almost every day. Um, I personally work a lot better from the office. My son is at home with my wife and you know i know he's well taken care of so i can come to the office and and really concentrate i usually get in um between 7 30 and 8 o'clock and the majority of my morning is fulfilling my selling function personally i am at my sharpest i'm at my most effective uh point call it from seven in the morning or six in the morning till about two o'clock in the afternoon um not to say that I can't accomplish things in the afternoon. I do. I just like to keep my selling function, uh, my sharpest time uh, to the morning. So what I do is it's not science. You know, it's very, very database oriented, uh, not rocket science. Sorry, I should say, um, you know, I use uh, a CRM system to track tenant activity um, and an account activity just the way you would in, in any selling function. Um, and it's really about having a rigorous approach to cold calling um, and a strategic approach to business development. Database management is, is of the utmost importance. Um, I try to manage 500 accounts uh, in my database at one time, which is quite a bit actually. I, I personally don't believe that any salesperson can manage uh, more than 500 accounts at one time. It's just a, a personal belief that I have because you know you need to be touching those accounts or have, have a touch point with that account at least once a quarter 
you need to be tracking that information accurately because you don't want to be storing it up here, right? You want to be storing it in your database so that you can refer to it and use more space up here to be thinking critically and to be thinking on your feet. Um, so it is about maintaining those accounts. It is about maintaining those relationships because what I think my opinion on getting hired because I need to, you know, get engaged with my client formally before I can start advocating for them is you have to be trustworthy. You have to be competent and prove that you can execute and you have to be likable. Now the likable factor um, is probably the easiest to establish if you are an outgoing person. Um, the trust factor is the one that takes time to, uh, to invoke and to receive from your client. And then the execution factor is the one that's you're trying to prove, right? You want to, to prove the business case that you're presenting to your client. So if you have all three of those, uh, I think you have a, a really, really good shot of, of doing business with that prospect. Um, the middle of my day is spent executing. My business takes place uh, for the most part over email. Sometimes I do present offers to landlords directly in a meeting face to face. Um, I did that a lot more at the initial parts of my career because I wanted to have that personal touch. I wanted to meet these investors, these landlords that I was dealing with um, because I wanted them to, to form a personal connection with me. And at the end of the day, yes, when we're negotiating, there's, there's two sides to a negotiation, but there's two humans involved in that negotiation at the end of the day. So, and there's a long, long, long runway that I have in my career. And what I found is that landlords and investors have very good memories. And when I'm dealing with them multiple times over the, the, the course of my career, I want them to, to look at me favorably. I want them to, to understand that this is somebody that they can trust because ultimately they're accountable to their shareholders or to their boards or to their investors. And I'm accountable to my client. So yes, we have different priorities, but at the end of the day, we have the same priority, which is to have a meeting of the minds and a meeting of, of negotiating terms. And we have to work together to do that. So I try to present offers as much as I can directly. Now my business has gotten to a level where, you know, I'm, I'm doing business in many different markets and that's not always, you know, doable, but I would suggest for anybody who's, who's younger in real estate um, or any kind of a transactional business, if you can go in and present that document face-to-face, uh, -face, I think it's, uh, it's a great idea. Uh, the, so the middle of my day is execution. That's when I'm, you know, sending offers back and forth, um, dealing with various deal type issues, making or making calls to other brokers to negotiate on behalf of my client and so on. And then the end of my day is really focused around customer care, getting back to those clients who I'm in the middle of transactions with because 
transactions that I do are, are longer, long-term transactions. The sales cycle in leasing is very, very long. Leases are five and 10 years, right? So oftentimes I'm getting engaged 18 months before my client's lease expiry, and I'm working with them through that entire 18-month period because there's a whole execution element involving, you know, is the company expanding? Um, are we in a renegotiation, staying in place, refurbishing their space? Are they relocating? If they're relocating, it's easily a 12-month process, depending on the size of the tenant. But if, you, if you're a business of 50-plus people and you're going to be relocating, it's a 12-month process from start to finish. So my sales cycle is very, very long, which gets back to why it's so important to have a very, very uh, up-to-date and accurate database because I'm dealing with so many different pieces of information every single day that if I'm using my conscious mind or my, my, for, my front, the front of my brain to, to keep all of that information and keep track of it, I'm really just doing myself a disservice because I'm taking up a lot of space that I can just download into my computer. Um, so those are really my three job functions, the selling function, the execution function, and the customer care at the end of the day because my business is about managing expectations and there are so many variables in leasing transactions that can change along the way. It's very important for me to communicate effectively and frequently with my clients. How has that changed? Holy smokes. Well, uh, it's changed significantly in the last three weeks, mostly because, um, well, for a few reasons. One, uh, the construction industry has come to pretty much a grinding halt. Uh, so the transactions that I'm working on now on the execution side, you know, building space has become impossible. Uh, building permits are not being issued by Toronto and other, other surrounding municipalities. Building inspections, closeouts are not being done. Um, so, you know, I am still transacting, but um, a lot of the transaction activity has dried up. And on the leasing side, we'll, we will see a knock-on effect um, from a transaction point of view in the market. Um, I'm just kind of waiting for that now. Um, yeah, so that's really how things have changed. From a selling perspective, um, I'm not really selling right now. I'm kind of trying to, to triage yeah. my <laughs> clients and really just help them out as much as I can. Um, and I know you have some questions about the industry and, and how that's changing and at a macro level. So I'll kind of let that for, I'll leave that for the next question. Sure. Um, but the, the changes in my day have been, you know, I flipped my selling mind, which is a very aggressive selling mind. I'm extremely aggressive. Um, I've flipped that on its head and I've switched that to, you know, how can I help my existing client base? Um, my prospects, I'm reaching out to them just kind of very, very informally to first understand, you know, are you healthy? Is your family healthy? That's priority number one. Right. Priority number two is what is the health of your business? I think it's very challenging right now to make any kind of determinations on that. Um, and I'll speak more to how landlords are, are treating that uh, later on. Um, 
So that's a kind of a, another topic of discussion. Yeah, for sure. I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned, like, do you, are you still spending the, the morning part of your day making calls to prospective clients or existing clients uh, and, and doing that relationship building, but sort of the function of it has just changed to like you're describing more triaging or, or just checking in and making sure that people are okay and seeing if there's anything else you can do to add value? Or are you mainly focused on your existing book right now and, and making sure they're all right? Great. Yeah, it's a very good question. You know, I, people, business people right now are not responding well to any kind of sales um, right. tactics. You know, um, I think it's, you'd be selling yourself short sorry to use the term selling, but you would be, you'd be selling yourself short as a, as a rep or a broker right now, trying to sell. Right. I think the, the approach right now is focus on your existing client base and make sure that their businesses or their lives are okay. Right. Um, what I've been doing is segmenting my day, um, into work and then family time. Um, because I do live in a, an apartment with my 16 month old son and my wife. And, you know, he doesn't understand that daddy needs to go and work during these hours or, you know, so what I've done is I'm working from seven 30 till noon. And then, um, well, I'm waking up having breakfast with him working from seven 30 till noon. And then, you know, all afternoon is, is family time. Yeah. And I, I really have, think that my clients are totally fine with that. And um, a lot of them are doing the same thing. So the advice that I would give right now is to schedule your time, um, you know, with your partner or with your family and say, look, I need to be focused on work during these, these hours of the day. I understand that, you know, you want my attention and I want to give you my attention, but you know, I need to be locked in for four or five hours and then I can give you my attention for the rest of the day. Right. Right. Yeah. It seems to be a common sentiment among business people that I've been speaking with that, you know, a lot of people are just using the opportunity to capitalize on this because the market is on pause. Like there's really, there's only so much you can do from, especially from a business development perspective, like we can't really progress and, and create new relationships without, like you said, you know, risking appearing like an ambulance chaser perhaps. Um, right. And, and so I, I think that that's been really nice and I think that it'll be valuable in hindsight, because once things start to ramp up again and we see the fires that we're going to have to be putting out as the economy kind of uh, resurrects itself, um, I, I would imagine that it's going to be a lot of work and, and very demanding for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, once the phone starts ringing again, um, I, I personally am looking very forward. I'm chopping at the bit yeah. um, to get back. Yeah, And I think that for people who are taking the right approach to yeah. coming back and looking at it as an opportunity to, to hustle again and to, um, to really perform. Yeah. Those are the people who are going to, to take full advantage of um, what will be a softer market. For sure. Um, and we can talk about markets because, you know, we've been fortunate to have a very, very active, market in Toronto and the GTA from, from all asset classes. Right. right. Um, and, uh, and we can talk about that in a few minutes. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, generally how have things changed in the industry, like for your clients, what are, what are most of the, the, the fires that you're putting out or the discussions that you're having and where do you find yourself adding value to your existing clients? And then mm. if there, if there is clients that are, that are still in the pipeline or in the sales system that, that are, are hoping to, to transact or do something in, mm-hmm. you know, are, what are you advising them to do? And then, on the perspective of, of the market in general, mm. what seems to be happening there? I know from you know from my perspective, it seems like volume is down like crazy. We haven't really seen an impact on on price yet, but I would anticipate that you know there are some leading indicators that would allude to that happening. Um, what's mm-hmm. your what's your take on that? All good questions. Um, so uh, let's talk about uh, my, about my business, uh, which is specific really to the office markets for a second. Um, now I've explained to you that I work on, on, on behalf of tenants and I don't take anything for granted. So maybe people don't really understand that my job or my role even exists. So, you know, there are really two sides to the, the office or the CRE business. There's, you know, the institutional, the, the investor side, the landlords who, who own and maintain the buildings. And then there's the tenants, the occupiers who pay the rent and, and keep the whole system going. Um, so as a tenant advocate, it's very, very important that I understand the priorities of landlords and what drives landlords because they are my negotiating opponent at the end of the day. And, you know, my clients live with them. They live in their buildings every single day. So my relationship with landlords is is not adversarial by any means. Um, I advocate strongly for my clients, but their priorities Landlords' priorities are always in my mind. So I speak with landlords on a daily basis. And what most of my landlord contacts are telling me is that they're going to be really going back to the fundamentals uh, that have made them successful uh, in the past. And the strongest fundamentals that landlords use in evaluating risk profiles in leasing transactions are the, land, are the, are the tenant's financial covenant the viability of their business. You know, lease obligations are are lengthy obligations. They're costly obligations. So the landlord's main concern, and there's a lot of risk in being a commercial landlord because there's a lot of cost associated with these transactions at the front end. What every landlord is most concerned with is the, the tenant's ability to make good or to fulfill their lease obligation. So the landlords that I'm speaking to are just even more so getting a little bit tougher on those criteria in evaluating their existing tenant base. So they're really grouping tenants into three or four different groups uh, to determine how to deal with them uh, on a go forward basis. And that might seem, you know, a little bit cold hearted or uh, a little bit harsh, but that's the reality of business is that, you know, we need to use strong fundamentals, especially in a situation like this, um, to carry forward. Um, now, this recession, this incoming recession, it wasn't caused by um, an error or uh, um, a mistake in the financial system like 2008 was. Right. But there were still a lot of, you know, 
a lot of leading indicators and a lot of indicators that were showing us that we were heading towards a recession. Yeah. People being over leveraged, you know, interest rates being low for, for a period of time and inflation creeping up. Um, so, you know, we need to really be honest with ourselves at times like this and, and stick to our fundamentals, which is what landlords are doing. So they're grouping tenants into four different groups for the most part. So there's what I will call the opportunistic large cap company. And this is the type of company that, you know, sees this situation for what it is and maybe trying to take advantage of the situation strategically um, and take advantage of their landlord's position. Um, so I don't think that landlords are going to be likely to help that group, that first opportunistic large cap group. Uh, the second group are businesses that are mid cap businesses that uh, were very viable before this crisis and will be viable after. So an example would be, you know, a local insurance brokerage, um, a local accounting firm, law firms. Now they might be operating at, you know, 60 or 70 or 80% of their, their capacity and their cash flow is probably impacted by that. But, you know, they're still invoicing their clients. They still have revenues coming in. And, you know, in terms of rent relief, I really don't think that that's a group that landlords are going to be keen in helping either. The third group um, is, again, uh, that mid-cap type company. Um, similar situation, um, but their revenues have been impacted greatly by this, right. uh, this situation. Um, so their business was very viable before, their business will be viable after, but you know, for, because of the industry that they're in, they're just getting crushed right now. And I do think that this is the, the group that landlords are going to be most um, motivated to help because businesses are viable, um, they've got great people running them, they're just, because, because, because of a situation that's completely out of their control, they're getting hit hardest right now. And I really do think that the third group is the group that landlords are going to be most um, keen on helping. And then the fourth group are the, the, the businesses that were frankly not great or not really viable before the COVID crisis and frankly are just going to not survive right. uh, this, this upcoming recession. And I think that, you know, some landlords are okay with that, frankly. Right. That's a Darwinistic approach to your tenancies, I suppose. It is, it is, but it's, it's realistic. You know, yeah. maybe you want some attrition in your portfolio and get, get rid of some of those tenants who, you know, may have had trouble paying rent in past, may have been in default in past. And frankly, the downtown office market could use some vacancy right now. Right. Um, we could use some, some pockets of space coming back to the market. Right. And I guarantee you that's what's going to be happening. Right. So let's talk about that for a second. Um, now that we've talked about it from the landlord's perspective, let's talk about it from the tenant's perspective. So um, there are really two ways other than rent relief, which in, you know, in my opinion is unique to this circumstance. Yeah. Um, other than rent relief, there's really two ways that you can within 
you know, the confines of your lease save money as a tenant. One is by right-sizing your space, disposing of space in either the sublease market or by renegotiating with your landlord. And right-sizing may involve, you know, downsizing your space. It will involve downsizing your space. Um, you may have had to lay off some employees, unfortunately. Um, you may have lost some projects that require you to, you know, uh, not take that expansion space that you were planning on taking or the, the expansion space that you recently took um, is overflow right now because you didn't end up taking on that project. So uh, what I'm helping my clients with a lot of the time is disposing of space through the sublease market. Now, there is a little bit of a flaw in that strategy in that, you know, subleases traditionally trade at a discount to market. So you're not going to be getting full recovery on your dollars, but it's better than nothing at all. Um, and then there, that, that begs the question, you know, if there's an onslaught of sublease space coming to the market because companies are, you know, underutilized on their space, who are going to be the entities that are stepping up and, and taking that space and leasing that space on the sublease market? Um, but I think that, you know, similar to the 2008 um, recession where we saw our bank step up, I really do think they're going to see tech step up this time around and uh, backfill a lot of that space. I know there's a ton of pent up demand downtown and in other markets from tech companies just looking for those opportunities, salivating for that space to come back to the market. So uh, similar to, you know, uh, 12 years ago when the banks took all that expansion space, I think you're going to see, you know, those tech companies really step up um, and take that space. I work for one of Canada's, I represent one of Canada's largest fintechs. Um, I can tell you that their business uh, has not been affected in a negative way by this crisis. We just finished a 30,000 square foot expansion for them last week, Amazing. which they are moving ahead with. Um, so there are businesses that are growing during this time. Uh, their business happens to be focused on the transactional um, part of banking and investments. So transaction activity is actually up. The volume's way up right now. Um, so they've gone ahead with that expansion. I also got some very pleasant news uh, from a group that I pitched about four months ago, a European company who has their North American headquarters in Markham. Okay. We pitched them and uh, we were able to unseat the incumbent. Um, who uh, had been doing the business for 15 years, happens to be the largest firm in our industry. Congratulations. And, um, I got win. that news on Friday. So, you know, good for you. Square foot deal, great deal. Um, and I was so pumped to get that news. Like that made that's, me feel that's amazing. Good for you. so good. It re-energized me so much. So, you know, if there is anything that you can do to complete a sale right now, holy smokes, it will feel so good. I promise you that. Yeah, I put a couple on the board last week uh, and, and it felt really good. Um, there definitely is some opportunism out there, but again, you got to be like, it's hard because I do some, like the majority of my transactions off market. So if I'm, if I'm calling for a buyer to try and find some secondary plan sites, I do feel, I do get that ambulance chasing feel. And that's actually why I started doing these dialogues because most of the people that I'm calling, they want they want me to answer the questions for them. Like what the hell is going to happen? And I'm like, I have no idea, honestly. So let me try and find out for you. I'm going to poke around with everybody that I can. Um, for sure. And when you're dealing with investors directly, you know, yeah. um, 
it's a different it's a different talk track and it's a it's a different set of priorities for sure uh, you know let's talk about the buy sell market on the commercial side sure. actually just before we jump over there if, if yeah. you don't mind what when you were talking about the the four different categories of tenants and the one that you're, you feel the landlords are most likely to protect mm-hmm. uh, or to, to try and help out it was that the that third category um do you feel like because i notice i think that banks are in a similar position right now with a lot of their borrowers where like I've tried to call my bank on some of my investment properties and have uh, mortgages deferred. And the answer was just no, because I have enough cash in my bank to weather at least that month. And then they said, call us again and we'll examine it on a month by month basis. Yes. It, it seems like, and, and from that perspective, I, I, I had thought that, you know, my relationship would be important to them. So now I'm considering refinancing because the rates are so low. Sure. Um, are, do you, how much of it do you think is actually, uh, you know, trying to hedge against the the financial risk. So they're trying to basically say, okay, yeah, I don't want this guy to default or because, or, or how, and how much of it do you think is them trying to manage the relationship because they feel that that's going to be an important thing in the recovery uh, that we're going to go through as a result Hmm. of this? Like, is it qualitative or quantitative the way that they're, they're, they're being nice in that respect? Uh, That's a very good question. And um, from the, you know, if we're talking about tenants for a second, Um, you know, I think it's very, very early to make that determination. Now, you know, we're call it, we're going into our, we're heading into our fourth week of this thing. Um, you know, I've had, I had clients in the second day, um, started asking me about rent relief and things like that. And, you know, for a certain type of business, I can understand that. Um, like if you're a restaurant, for example, or you're, you know, a service business or you're, you know, you're, you're consumer facing and that traffic coming in and providing that revenue is essential for you to, to cover your expenses. You know, that, that I understand. Um, but it's still a little bit early uh, for office tenants to be kind of parading around demanding rent relief. Right. So um, I, I think it's more of a, a quantitative discussion from in my world Right. Um, because, you know, the landlords are going, I have my mortgage to pay. Like, yeah. I, I don't know if you, I'm sure you know, but I don't know if most people understand that the office buildings that you see around you, they're not paid for in cash for yeah. the most part. And, you know, there's significant debt on those buildings because those landlords want to leverage that debt so that they can go out and, and purchase other assets. Right. So, you know, there's a, there's an entire system at play here. Uh, so, you know, if the, if the tenants don't pay their rent, the landlord's not going to be able to pay their lender. They're going to default on their mortgage. And that's a big concern right now is, you know, what are commercial mortgages? What's the state of commercial mortgages going to be? Yeah. Um, and the, the office market is, is, is run just like any other market. It, it follows the laws of supply and demand. So, it's far too early to be making any kind of judgments or assertions that, you know, the office office rates are going to drop by 20% or something like that. Um, Because we have to see first, you know, how does, how does this crisis translate into how much space comes back to the market for lease? How many tenants default on those leases and what kind of vacancy does that translate to in the markets? Um, because until we start seeing that information, um, I, I really fear that transaction activity is just going to freeze right up. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, 
from a personal banking perspective, I think there is more of a qualitative or a humanistic For sure. uh, element to it, but landlords, not as much because, you know, these contracts are written as contracts. They're, you know, the landlords have their bills to pay, their employees to pay, their businesses just like the businesses who occupy their properties at the end of the day. So, you know, it's important to understand their priorities. And I, the advice that I would give tenants is to try to be as transparent with your landlord as possible. Um, you know, couple with your advisor, talk yeah. to your advisor, your broker, yeah. have a conversation with them, create a plan. And if you need to go to your landlord for rent relief, you better have your ducks in a row because I know a few of my clients have already tried it and the landlords have come back and said, you know, we understand we're, we're going to try to work with you, but you know, you need to show us five years financial statements. You need to show us how your current revenues are being impacted by this crisis. And you need to sh to write us a business case as to why we should be providing you with this rent relief. Um, and I don't disagree with that approach at all because that will weed out those opportunistic businesses yeah. who are trying to take advantage of the situation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If, if you, so it just seems like collaboration really is going to be important, at least in the, at the beginning of this whole thing. And, and then as it drags on, I guess we'll see. Um, if you want to, you, you had mentioned you were going to jump into the sales side, uh, sure. a little bit about investment sales, if you want to touch on some of the changes you've seen there. Yeah. So let's talk about, you know, the environment pre COVID and what, I think the environment will look like post COVID. Um, so, you know, if you, if you were a private investor trying to, to make money in commercial real estate in Toronto pre COVID, it was a very challenging environment. For sure. Uh, there's very little supply, um, very little vacancy in the market to, to create any kind of churn. And, with rents being so high, cap rates being so low, the private investor was getting priced out of the market. Um, you saw, you know, huge life insurance companies, pension funds like Omer's, Oxford, Teachers, Cadillac, just a few examples, mm -hmm. uh, massive institutions with very, very patient money, you know, buying these office assets at inflated prices because they could afford to pay a little bit more than the private investor could pay uh, because they're, you know, they need that four and a half percent return over 20 years for their pensioners or, or whatever, or what have you, or on their, on their insurance premiums. So what I think that this crisis is going to do is I think it's going to just by nature of, you know, um, of the markets bring more of those bring more of that product to market and make it more accessible to investors so you know i know a lot of friends who are private i, I don't personally have any real estate investments yet um, on the commercial side but it is my plan to do so but i have a lot of friends who do and run private equities and also on the on the public money side and i can tell you that the people on the private side have found it very, very difficult in this city to, to find deals and to, to place money. Um, many, many hundreds of properties being evaluated and, you know, um, doing 
modeling, financial modeling on and going through the process of acquisition only to be outbid by, you know, a much larger entity um, at a ridiculous price. So I think you're going to see pressure on prices to come down. Interest rates will remain low, um, which will stimulate the capital markets. I think investor criteria will have to tighten up a little bit more um, in order uh, for that capital to be deployed right. in an effective way. So the real changes I see are, you know, a temporary, um, a temporary uh, lockup or freeze up of trades. But once things get back to normal, there's going to be, you know, lots of product coming to market and lots of product trading. So yeah. I think that's a very, very positive thing. For sure. For sure. I would agree. I think we saw something similar on the, on the development side as well. Like, you know, a lot of these there over the past two years, I noticed that there was a lot of guys who were really trying to make that step from the, you know, your six story sticks, uh, infill sites to the, not the big high rise concrete stuff or like skyscrapers, but your sort of mid cap, like the, any, any property that you could have sort of in the one to two fifty GFA buildable, uh, was like there was guys lining up for it and and you started to see some of the developers come from the top or the builders sorry come from the top and and gobble up those sites because they were running such big uh, operations that they needed to keep their pipeline full to keep the lights on at, at a lot of these bigger developers so you found you know all this demand coming from the bottom and all this demand coming from the top and it just made for a mess for anybody in in sort of that mid cap market trying to just trying sure. to get a little bit further in the development space. Um, I think, I think, it, I think it just, I agree with you. Yeah. For the, the same concept applied to, to existing product because right. you have these mid cap landlords who are used to playing in that market, buying and selling in that market, but there's no product. Yeah. Uh, and now the institutions have come into that market. Yeah. So there's stuff to buy at the top. They're just sitting on their product yeah. and, they're fine with the cash flow, but they're not able to grow their business. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's really interesting. Do you do you anticipate that things are going to change more over the next uh, two to three months? Let's say, like over the next quarter um, and towards the end of the year. Like, what's your outlook, or do you think that like it looks like things are going to return to normal? Or, I mean, the answer that most people are giving me is it depends, and then they kind of list the variables on which it depends. But what would your outlook be on on how much more change we're going to see? I think we're in for a three to six month real estate winter, right, unfortunately, okay. um, where you will see transaction activity fall off tremendously. But let's talk about, you know, the incentive for getting that back because the transaction activity and the commissions that derive from that activity are a huge part of our GDP, our national GDP every year. <laughs> Absolutely massive part, yeah about 15% of our GDP is real estate related. And then if you, and if you analyze it on a housing piece too, I mean like there, there are guys who can kind of uh, speculate that it's up in like the close to 70% directly or indirectly related to the development of housing, which is just crazy right. if you really think about right. it. Right. And we can't afford to take our foot off the pedal with development with no. the influx of people we get to the city every year, 150,000 or so legal immigrants coming in every year and those are just the legal ones yeah um you know you can't afford to take your foot off the pedal development wise we need to intensify we need to continue to do that well that would just perpetuate um, the supply scarcity that's already 
causing this this challenging effect with affordability anyway right so it 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 might um but i i do think you're going to start to see some of the ridiculousness come off of the market i would agree with you um i'll get back to that three to six month real estate winter um because that's what i saw kind of in 2008 in my own business yeah was that companies froze up they just were so uncertain they didn't yeah. want to make a decision yeah and i think you'll see homeowners and property owners kind of do the same thing for the next three to six months for sure environment is just so uncertain you know you can't run an open house in a house anymore i'm sure you saw the email that just came out from treb today and from Oria, um, you know, so physically doing real estate transactions is going to be very difficult. Um, you know, getting lawyers to close deals, getting all of that to, to happen is going to be difficult for the next three to six months. But, you know, what else, what I think you'll see come out of that is, is a plethora of transaction activity towards the end of this year. Sure. Um, and uh, I have to hope that there's enough at stake real estate wise. And I, I do really think that this city and the GTA is is so focused on it that um, you know you'll see a, a winter for three to six months, but after that, it's just going to blow up yeah. again. Yeah. But I do think you're going to see the ridiculousness in cap rates and you know the comparative selling approach on the residential side. Yeah. I think you're going to see that stupid froth come off the market, which will yeah. present an opportunity for you know first-time home buyers and for first-time commercial investors who, who want to get into the game because there are going to be people who, you know, who are over leveraged on their real estate yeah. who need to dispose um, or refinance or will be looking for partners. That's the other thing. Right. If you know, if you know somebody who owns an asset right now and you know, maybe that asset's not doing very, very well or won't be doing very well in the future, this is a perfect time to approach them as you know a younger professional who might have some cash in hand and say, "Look, why don't you let me take you out for twenty five percent, or you know, uh, buy in for twenty five percent of this?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. For, it's a great time to get in opportunistic joint ventures. Um, I, uh, I I have a similar philosophy that I think like a lot of that froth is going to get shaved off the top. I mean, you're already seeing it with like a lot of these ghost hotels are, are flooding the market, uh, vac- the Airbnbs that are now vacant. Uh, and I think that, you know, the, 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 the further that uh, an asset detached from fundamentals, the, the more vulnerable it is right now. And I think a lot of For that sure. stuff's going to start coming down. I really hope we don't see a race to the bottom scenario. And I don't think we will given how much the, the financial markets have, have tried their best to accommodate some of these challenges. But the reality is it, it, this is an investment and there's risk associated with it. And I think a lot of people that, that didn't take that into account before, when they were making the acquisitions are about to learn that the hard way. And, and that's sad. It's going to suck. But I mean, we have the rest of our lives to, to take that that lesson learn from it and and make better decisions moving forward right precisely and that's a huge opportunity for younger people who are who are just getting into the markets now to learn from that like you said and not necessarily feel that pain yeah but to 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 adjust and maybe approach some of those older investors and say look this is a great property i can see you know with implementing some stronger fundamentals really you know having this thing perform to its highest and best use for sure um and you know i'd like to help you with that so you know here's a hundred thousand dollars and you make me you know a minority partner because i believe in the real estate right 
Right. That's a really good point. I actually, I have an opportunistic investor who's been just waiting for this. And he was sort of the one who placed a lot of that paranoia that I had about, about COVID early on. And he, you know, he said that that was going to be the, the pin that, that burst the bubble and, and he's already, you know, the one on the phone. And I've been hesitant, like sort of reluctant to, to be making a lot of the calls and at least this early on, I just said, you know, if, if, if the situation's bad, I'm, we're going to find out about it in some mm-hmm. fashion. I don't think we need to go looking for people suffering. Um, no, but it's, it's all in your messaging too, no, to, absolutely. to those people, right? It's, you know, you can have a predatory type message or you can, you can do it the right way and say, look, you know, I understand you're hurting right now. What can I do to help minimize that for you for sure. so that when they're not hurting or when things get a little bit better, they're thinking of you as mm-hmm. the person who helped them with a the solution when they were down. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And, and a lot of the calls that I've been doing with the, with the guys out of Vina Capital, um, I'm not sure if you know Sim, but I'll definitely introduce you um, if you'd like. Um, but th- they have a fund that they, you know, just before this were using for top ups on land to get developers a little bit extra leverage to kind of, you know, advance things or get into acquisition mode or whatever it was. Smart. Wanted to. Yeah. And, and so now that, that fund has really just become almost rescue capital and, and a lot of bridge yeah. and, and still top ups, but just, you know, getting a little bit of greater leverage and kind of moving, moving things, helping people move things forward a little bit. Um, well, there's and, the whole development, the whole development profit that can be, you know, it's basically future money that can be pulled back to today. Right. Yeah. Yeah, well, especially with uh, with deposit, like insured deposits. But I think like it's funny. I'm actually going to be interviewing Dustin from Avena after this, and and they've been calling all the lenders lately to get an idea for what these guys are 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 doing now. And mm-hmm. a lot of the foreign capital is is really active and really opportunistic on because they're they're seeing the opportunity to get in on deals that they never had a shot at before. There's actual deals out there for them. Yeah, yeah, for on. sure. But and but a lot of the Canadian and and because I think that they're later in the in the in the COVID curve than than we are in Canada. So you know, a lot of them are saying, okay, it's maybe not that bad, and maybe you know, you know, once Canada gets out of it, we'll see things uh, improving. And so like a lot of South Korean and Chinese capital actually, you know, on the lending side has, has been really um, active. Um, but I, I thought it was just, it, it was interesting um, to, to think about um, just how, I don't know, how, how reluctant the, the domestic banks are getting on, even on, on, on insured deposits, et cetera, because I think that they understand that this whole thing's a little bit of a function of like, the, I don't, I don't know if they it's, it becomes systemic at that point, right? Like if, you know, if one of your deposit insurers or whatever, or if, if a lot of these investors, especially on these big condo buildings, where that to me is one of the biggest categories of froth, like where guys are buying a condo for, you know, 1400 bucks a foot and next door a building selling at, you know, 900 now. And sure. at that, that three, four $500 spread per foot is, is going to be, is that's going to be scary. And, if those guys walk from their money because they only had a 60 K deposit in it or whatever. And the bank, I think the banks are, are getting a little bit reluctant to lend on, on those deals. For sure. For sure. And that goes back to, you know, my comment about capital. Yes, there's, there's cheap money out there, but I think you're going to find that the money is going to come with a few more strings than it used yeah. to. Yeah. We always say affordable capital is not accessible capital. That's, that's, I think that's bang on and, but that's responsible at the yeah, same time. And that's, that's, you know, frankly, how we avoided the 2008 recession hitting us really, really bad. Yeah, yeah for sure. For sure. Um, um, 
Go I got to wrap up in about yeah. five minutes here. Yeah, I know. Is there, is there any advice you can give to, to professionals or companies uh, on, on how to handle this and then anything else you want to add before we wrap up? For sure. For sure. Um, you know, there's the, there's the kind of cliche going around, you know, stronger together. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll get through this together. The reality is that people's investments are getting hit. There's a tremendous amount of stress to their businesses. And, you know, all I can say is I felt that really early being somebody who, you know, doesn't have a salary. Um, and I felt it a lot through my clients' businesses very early. And I took this thing and my family took this thing very, very seriously from the beginning. It's caused a lot of pain. It's caused a lot of anxiety. But the best thing we can all do is just to follow the direction of our government. You know, um, I think our government officials are doing a tremendous job. Um, you know, it's so easy to be critical of our government at times like this and, and any time and to think that government is bad. Oh, this, you know, we want less government control in our life. I think our politicians are doing a phenomenal job. Um, I think that John Tory is doing a great job should be reelected. I think Doug Ford is doing a great job. I didn't vote for Doug Ford, but just seeing the stance that he's taking in front of that podium every day and really putting, it seems like he cares so much. Um, and Trudeau, you know, he has his fair share of critics as well. I think he's demonstrating a tremendous amount of strength every day, getting out there and being firm with people um, and, and advocating for his country. Um, the advice that I would give professionals is, you know, take this time to sharpen your tools. Take this time to look at your business from multiple perspectives. Take this time to improve upon your business processes and your organization. And then come out of this thing raring to go and chomping at the bit because there's going to be a lot of business out there for us guys and, and gals. And, uh, I can't wait to see you all back out there. Nice. I really appreciate that. Um, I, uh, I think your insight has been, uh, been really helpful to me and I think it's going to be helpful to a lot of people. Um, is there, is there anywhere, if people want to reach out to you, is there anywhere that you'd prefer they do so? Um, sure. And you can just give me your, your information and I'll, I'll include it in the podcast and in the notes. Sure. Well. Sure. Uh, feel free to send me an, an email at uh, J-B-O-G-L-E-R at Savills, S-A-V-I-L-L-S dot C-A. That's jbogler at Savills dot C-A. And I can be reached at 416 0603. Please give me a call or an email. I'd love to hear from you. Amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Go enjoy some family time. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.